We will turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We heard God's word being read. If we were to um, make a judgment based on what we read in chapter 6 about the church at Corinth, we can say that it is a litigious and a licentious church. A litigious because they were in error of taking their brother or their sister to court and licentious because they had this error of personal courtship with sin. Litigious and licentious. And that is how I see this chapter being divided. The first section is from verse 1 to verse 11, where they would take the brothers or the sister to court and how Paul is addressing that. And then he moves on to verse 12 and to 20, and he talks about how we tend to excuse sin in ourselves. So the first part really is about how we are very you know, quick to find sin and not be gracious to someone else, but we are very gracious to ourselves. We are you know, very forgiving of the sin in ourselves, the litigious and the licentious. And so that's what stands out if you were to quickly divide this chapter. And we will go through this to understand. And so really what it is, is there's a grace that is skewed. A skewed grace. And what I mean by that is, you see, when we're not forgiving of the others, but we are forgiving of our own selves, then we have not understood grace in the right way. And so that's the reason why I title the sermon as being a discerning church, that we will understand, that we will know, we can discern sin and call it sin, whether in the life of the community, in the life of our brother or sister, or in our own lives, and that we will be discerning enough to deal with it. And and, and that would be the core focus of what we're going to look at today in chapter 6. Now, what Paul does is he asks eight questions as he goes through this chapter. Eight rhetorical questions, of which six questions are, do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? And so what Paul is saying, listen, this is not new information. This is not something that, you know, I'm telling you new, something new, but you already know about it. And this is a good reminder, therefore, to them and should serve as a good reminder for us as to what God speaks about sin. Um, in Corinth, if, you, if we won't turn to that, but in Acts chapter 18, we see how the Corinthian church was established and Saul or Paul was there for 18 months uh, teaching the Corinthian church. At the end of 18 months, the Jews rise up and there is, uh, you know, there is a revolt uh, and they bring him bring him in the presence of Gallio, and Gallio says, this is to do with your religion, I'm not going to participate in that, and so they beat up Sosthenes, who is, uh, who becomes a Christian later, but at this time he's a synagogue ruler, and then we read later that Paul stayed there for many days later, and so at least for 18 months, and and a little longer, Paul was there teaching, and educating, and training the church in Corinth, 
And they've had good teachers. They've had Aquila, Aquila and Priscilla. They've had Apollos. So this information that he is trying to remind them is not new information. Well, this Corinthian church we saw was, uh, was written, if you, if you were to uh, turn to chapter 7 and verse 1, it says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, tells us that in those first six chapters, he didn't even get to the questions that were being asked. He had to address sin. He had to, he had to tell them there's something wrong before I get to answer your questions. And so we've been looking at the past seven weeks, or in a total of seven weeks, we've been going through the various things that Paul was bringing out and how that becomes applicable to us, right? And essentially, he's saying there's pride, there's arrogance, there is a misunderstanding of grace, there's lack of love. You see, in chapter 13, when you get there, he, he brings this love aspect and says that is missing. And so that... That, that is the core of what Paul is telling the Corinthian church. And our endeavor is to say that let, let them be an example for us not to follow. That we don't be like the Corinthian church. And, and so the, the first part as we look at is the litigation, I said, right? The litigious the error of taking people to court. So what do we have in verse 1? It says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous? So he says, you know, do you go to the unrighteous to settle your matters? That's what he says. You see, what the Corinthian people would do is that if they had a problem, they would go to what's called the Bema court. It's a public uh, marketplace. That's where the court was. Now, this word bima, how many of you have heard of bima before? Have you heard of the bima, word bima? Yeah, bima. Paul actually uses this imagery to speak about the judgment seat of Christ, the bima seat of Christ. He speaks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and also in Romans he, he makes mention of it because he's using the same word the Corinthian church would understand what it is all about. Okay, so the, the Corinthians would live their lives where if there's some problem, they would go to this marketplace to, to get their problem resolved. And, and I want us to quickly go through just how their uh, legal system was laid out uh, so that we can see why the problem, okay? And so the first is that it's a three-step process. The first process is a private arbitration. So if two people have a problem, they would, in, in, uh, they would involve a third person who is... Uh, unbiased, and they, between the three of them, would try to come up with a solution to what the problem is. Now, if that doesn't happen, if it doesn't work, then it's escalated to what is called the 40. 40. There's a 40 people in, in that court system, and they would then identify a public arbitrator. The first was a private arbitrator. Now it's a public arbitrator. Now, in Corinth, Everybody in their 60th year, when they were 60 years old, in their 60th year, they become the public arbitrator. So it doesn't matter whether you're qualified or not, you're 60 years old, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I don't know uh, how many of you are 60 currently, but you would have been a public arbitrator in Corinth. And so the three of them would, 
would try to arrive at a solution. If that doesn't happen, then it moves up to the next level, and it's called the multiple jury court. Now, this comes in two parts, in two sizes, small and large. If it's a small-sized case, depending on the value, let's say about $5,000, if it's less than $5,000, then they would go to a jury court of 201 people, 201 in that jury. And if it's larger than 5,000 in our case that we just uh, said, it would be 401 people in that jury. Now, there have been instances where there have been 1,000 to 6,000 people in a jury, 6,000 people sitting around trying to understand and to come up with a solution to the problem between these two. And the solution was always based on majority. So out of 6,000, majority people agreed that this is how the problem should be resolved. That is what the resolution would be. You see, they were not lawyers, essentially, but because of the way their system was laid out, everybody had a minimal understanding of what the law is, but they would contribute to arriving at a decision. And Paul was saying, when you go, you're putting church at disrepute. You're going into this public forum to air out what your problems are. Is there, is there no one among you? How dare we go to court? You see, they understood the sect of Nazarenes. They understood the sect of what was called the way or the Christians, that they called each other brothers and sisters, and that they had heard that in Jerusalem, in some places, that they were selling property and they were sharing. But listen, out here we see it very differently. They, 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 they are taking them to court. They're no better than us. There's no difference between what we've heard about this sect called the way versus us. There is therefore church being put into disrepute. And so in verses 2 and 4, I'm going to ask Praveen to read from 2 to 4. Paul has three rapid-fire questions. All right, so the, the, you're going to judge the world. You're going to judge the angels. Now, is there nobody among you who can stand and arbitrate? Is that not possible? Paul asks, why is it that you'd have to go to uh, the uh, public court? And then in verse 7, he says, having a lawsuit among you is already a defeat. It's a defeat if you have a lawsuit. And he gives three reasons why it's a, loss, uh, why it's a defeat. Turn to verse 6. It says, brother goes to a law against a brother, and that before the unbelievers. The fact that you're going in front of an unbeliever for resolution between two brothers or two sisters or brother and sister, that's a defeat one. Defeat two is that why won't you be wronged? Why won't you be defrauded? In verse seven, it says there, it says um, to, to have lawsuits 
at all with one another is that defeat already why not rather suffer wrong why not rather be defrauded listen you're saying their brother their sister why is it that if they are family that you have a problem why wouldn't you be willing to be defrauded that's defeat two but then defeat three is in verse eight it says and you wrong and you defraud not just that you go to the unbelievers to get your problems settled, but not that you uh, are not willing to be defrauded, but you yourself defraud. You're saying it's no more just about recompense, but about revenge. It's not about just getting what I think is right, but I want to get revenge. I want to hurt that person because he dared to stand up against me or has, has a problem against me. A recompense. Three defeats. That's why in verse 7 it says, the fact that you have lawsuits among you demonstrates that you've already been defeated. You see, you go to a court for winning, but before you go to a court, you've already been defeated when you go to a court. Now, I want to clarify this very clearly, and this is what I want you to understand. Paul is not talking about a Christian Sharia law or a Christian Sharia court. He is not talking about an alternative religious judicial system as opposed to the public system is if you were to read the book of acts you would see at least three times where paul availed of himself in a court case or the advantage that court provides so this is not about the alternative to the public uh, court system, that we should have a Christian court system, but the, the fact that, that there was no willingness for them to talk among themselves, for having somebody among them who can arbit arbitrate, but that they were not willing to lose and go out into the public and air the grievance and make it public is putting church to disrepute. That's where the problem is. They not just... They were not willing to be defrauded, not willing to be on the losing end, but by going to court, they're actually losing because they put themselves at the, um, you know, at the losing end. And what Paul is writing to say is that if we are a Christian, we might learn to lose. If we are a Christian... We must be willing to learn to lose. You see, um, this teaching was totally contrary to the, the culture of the Corinthian church. They were litigious. They were, everything was about suing each other. And what Paul was saying was different. And... and um, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul is saying essentially this. Listen, going to court may be Corinthian, but it is not Christian. It may be Corinthian. It may be what is happening in uh, and around you, but that is not Christian. I'm not sure if you've heard of this word, Rex tal talionis. That's Latin. I just wanted to show off a little bit. But the law is called the law of retaliation, the tit for tat, or, as the Bible calls it, eye for eye or tooth for tooth. All right? Now, I know we find that in the Bible, but it's one of the oldest laws in the code of conduct that's there. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And what it says is that the, the punishment must correspond to the kind and degree 
of the, of the um, injury. Of whatever is wrong, it should correspond to the kind and degree. That is, if it's an eye is taken, then you take an eye. If, um, you know, if tooth is taken, then you take a tooth. And, and it's in that context, I want you to understand when the Lord Jesus Christ comes in Matthew chapter 5, he brings about a total different understanding to what culture is. So if you will turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. Matthew 5, 38 to 42. What Jesus Christ is doing, he's saying it's not the law of retaliation, but it's the grace of reconciliation. He turns us around. He, he, he's saying, listen, I know you've been told eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, it's no more this law of retaliation, but the grace of, say with me, reconciliation. The grace of reconciliation. So four practical ways. In verse 39, whoever slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to him the other also. Verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Verse 41, and whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. Verse 42, give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You see, the message that, was, that Paul was bringing to the Corinthian church is contraindicated to the Corinthian culture, but it was not his own. It was something that Christ had taught. That's the message that Paul is bringing. Paul brings this grace of reconciliation. We, we look around in our culture too, right? I mean, the great American saying is what? In God we trust, but I'll see you in court. Or what's that great uh, American pastime where they say it's, it's no more the baseball, uh, baseball diamond, but the um, legal court. You see, everything is about legal, legality and litigation, and we see that. But I have to ask this question to myself as a Christ follower. We should ask this to ourselves as Christ followers. Are we about the law of retaliation or are we about the grace of reconciliation? We have this option, right? Do we, do we want to settle even when we are defrauded? Because we have been graced much. And I want to give you three quotes from three perspectives. One is from Plato. Now, you know, he was a Greek thinker. He was a non-Christian. And this is what he says. The really good man will always choose to suffer wrong rather than to do wrong. And then he adds again, the truly good man will always choose to suffer wrong rather than to do wrong. He emphasizes this fact. What are the Jewish teachers? Now, the Jews would, not, Jews would not take people to court because this is what they believe. To take our problems to a pagan court is the same as blaspheming God, for it is in effect saying God doesn't have an answer to this problem. But I want you to hear from a Christian perspective as to what this chapter is talking about. And in a, a very cl cleverly entitled sermon, suits that don't fit, this is what he says, I think we must at least see that if these passages teach nothing else, they teach that as a Christian, my rights are not as important as my testimony. Let me read that again. My rights are not as important 
as my testimony. For if I look after my testimony, the Bible hints that there is someone who will look after my rights. After all, God is either in control or he is not. He is either the owner of the cattle on a thousand hills or he is not. And if he is not, we are wasting our time. And if he is, then I don't need to break my neck trying to protect my rights and my property and my reputation. God can and will take care of all that for me. Grace of reconciliation. How much are we, be, how much are we willing to be defrauded, to let go, to sacrifice so that we can reconcile? Not that we seek revenge and retaliation. You see... The grace that we have received must be the grace that we continue to give. And we said the Lord Jesus Christ who taught us also served as an example. We read that in Philippians chapter 2, right, in verse 6 and 7. Though he was in the form of God, he thought it not robbery to, to hold on to God, to, to hold to, to, uh, thought it not robbery, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped but emptied himself. And in John chapter 1, verse 16, it says, From his fullness we have received grace upon grace, grace upon grace. We have abundant grace that we have received. And so grace receivers must be grace givers. I don't know how many of you uh, know about uh, Mumbai monsoons. Those of you who live there would attest to the reality of this. But we have a season where it just rains. It rains for days and days or hours and hours, and it can be so much of water, it's, just, it's, it's not even funny. And so if you go to work and you come, your umbrella is not going to help you, your trench coats, your whatever protective gear you might have is not going to help you, you're coming back soaking wet. And we would do this when we were in school, so it's a prank we would we would pull. We come in soaking wet. We find somebody who's dry. Go give that person a hug. Because our, our, uh, our intent is so that if I'm wet, you must be wet too. But that's what grace. That's what grace. We, we are soaking in grace. We are soaking in grace. And how can we not, therefore, pass it on? the grace that we pass on. Freely received and freely give. What, uh, we looked at Romans chapter 5 and that earlier part of that passage that wasn't read to us in verse 8, it says, for God demonstrated his love for us that while we, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In the, in the verses prior to that, Paul actually presents three different kinds of people. A sinner, or, or, sorry, um, a righteous, a good man, and a sinner. A righteous man, a good man, and a sinner. And this is how you know, I was taught, and I thought this is a good way to remember. So a righteous man would say, what is yours is yours, what is mine is mine, and would be happy. That's what a righteous man is. What a good man does is, listen, you keep what is yours, and I'll give you what's mine. So that's why Paul says, for scarcely for a, uh, for a righteous man somebody to die, but they might for a good man. 
But God demonstrates his love for us that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And what a sinner does is that I'm going to keep what is mine, but I'm going to grab what is yours. And God demonstrates his love to us while we were sinners. Not while we were good or while we were righteous, but while we were sinners. And that's grace that we have received. This grace that runs contrary to natural man, it is not natural of us to be able to show this kind of grace. But if we have experienced grace, this unnatural grace, this heavenly grace, then it is only mandated upon us that we pass it on, that we be the channels of grace. And it starts with, with the house of God. And so another way of putting this chapter or titling this chapter would be, Christian, give up your rights. And the first part would be that our rights that we impose on others, you see, the, the rights that we impose on others, we need to be mindful because the church belongs to Christ. We, we read that in the first part. And the second part is the rights that we grant to ourselves, the liberty that we grant to ourselves. We need to be careful because the body belongs to Christ. Our body belongs to Christ. And so how do we apply this first part? How do we get to this application? Uh, Two questions that you can ask. How do we respond when our rights are trampled? And how do we react when we are wrongly treated? Don't skip through this question real quick because if you answer this honestly, it will show you whether you're just a grace receiver or a grace giver to you. If we have stuck, if we are stuck in the law of retaliation versus what's the other one? The grace of reconciliation. Grace receivers must be grace givers too. Then in verses 9 to 11 is the transition verse which says, Do not be deceived. I would have read that, but for lack of time, I'm going to go right through. But uh, when you go back, you can read that. It says, the phrase that stands there is, do not be deceived. Deceived in the New Testament, in the, gray, in the Greek would say, to cause a strain, to lay aside. But in the Old Testament meaning, that really caught my attention. Well, the first time it, it, you, you come across the word deceived is when Eve tells God, this serpent deceived me. And the word there is that of a credit. Uh, a person coming to collect, your credit collector, your debt collector, sorry, not the credit collector, the debt collector, who, who comes to, to demand what is theirs. You see, now there's, I don't know if you know of this, but there is a law called the FDCPA, at least I think in the U.S., which is the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act. So if we have in, in this real life, uh, there is a debt collector, the way they go about collecting debt, there are certain practices they have to adhere to. But when sin comes collecting its debt, it's more like the uh, Shylock of the Merchant of Venice, the Shakespeare's play, where where it comes to collect its pound of flesh, it destroys. Sin is dangerous and and destructive, both on its end and on each day, as you understand. And so in the transition verse from 6 to 11, what Paul is saying, listen, that was your past state. That was who you are. And it says there, right? And it says all these you were before. 
right? And um, um, in verse 11, and such were some of you, and you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of us. That was the past. And now you're sanctified, you're washed, you're justified. Why would you turn back to that? And Paul is not saying that, listen, if you're a Christian, you never sin because we grieve and we quench the spirit. But it's just that why would we enjoy that? Why is it that we hold on to that? Uh, Billy Sunday, he was talking about why we pamper sin in our lives is because one reason sin flourishes is that it is treated as a cream puff instead of a rattlesnake. If we recognize the depravity, the danger of sin, we will say, I don't want to do anything with it. I want to move away as far as possible. So what about the second part, the licentious, the error of personal courtship with sin? It says in verse 12 that everything is lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Not everything is profitable. Now, this is a Corinthian quote. This is what they would say. Listen, I mean, it's all, it's all okay. I can do it. That's no problem. It's lawful. I'm not breaking any law. But Paul is saying not, that's not just the question you ask, but you also ask the question whether it's profitable. It may be lawful, but is it Profitable, And then he goes on to, in verse 12 and 13, to, to talk about what it is. He says, you know, food is equal stomach. So food is for the stomach, A is for B, and stomach is for food, B is for A. That, is, that, that we understand. But God is going to destroy both A and B. So food for stomach, stomach for food, God is going to destroy both food and, both, and, and the stomach. Then he goes on in, in verse 13 to the second part, and he says, the body, A, is for the Lord, B. And the Lord, B, is for the body, A. And God raised B, the Lord, from death, and he will raise us, our body, from death. You see, what the Corinthian church was saying, well, not the Corinthian church, but the Corinthian culture was this. Saying that, listen, food, there's no restriction on food. I can eat anything. I know some of us want sushi and another one Chinese. And, you know, there's no restriction on food. And if that's one physical desire that I want to satisfy and you have no problem, why is it that we have a problem with another kind of a physical desire, which is sex or lust? And Paul is saying, no, that doesn't work that way. No, no, no. Food equals stomach, but body is for the Lord. You see, they're not too same physical desires. Food may be for the body, food may be for the stomach, sorry, but your body is for the Lord. It is a spiritual uh, need, not a physical. And so let me read to you this quote from Constable who uh, provides this God's view. It says, God views sexual intercourse not merely as a physical need satisfied, but a spiritual union between the two as involving the whole person, not just the body. It is the most intimate sharing that human beings experience. And then I'm going to ask Praveen to read from verse 18 to 20. So now you understand the context as to why a body is not to be treated just as a mere physical uh, state. Verse 18. 
Thank you. We, we, we have said that we are under grace, and so everything is lawful for me. Paul says, no, you need to ask whether it's really profitable for you. And that should be the way you evaluate uh, things. You see, we defanged sin, make it like, look less dangerous. I was reading through a Moody Monthly, and this is what it talks about sin. It says, man calls it an accident, God calls it an abomination. Man calls it a defect, God calls it a disease. Man calls it an error, God calls it an enmity. Man calls it a liberty, God calls it lawlessness. Man calls it a trifle, God calls it a tragedy. Man calls it a mistake, God calls it a madness. Man calls it a weakness. God calls it willfulness. You see, sometimes as the Corinthians, we have said anything goes, and God says, no, it doesn't work that way. Grace is not for abuse. Grace is not for abuse. The way we have treated our sin is uh, how Augustine puts it, and the three stages of sin. He, he, he says, we have this prayer that we pray, Lord, make me good, but not yet. Or Lord, make me good, but not entirely. And he says, we need to get to the place where it says, God, make me good. And that's the kind of discernment we want. A discernment to say sin is a rattlesnake. Sin is dangerous. When we see it in the community, when we see it in our lives, so we would not just you know, try to hide, try to excuse it away, but that we will treat it as sin. You see, the early settlers, I was told, uh, when they would buy a place for their house, they would buy it over what was called the snake line. There is in nature this invisible line that about which the snakes don't live. And so they would find these homes above the snake line so that they would protect their families. But as you go higher, it's less fertile. It is more work to settle things. It's much easier in the valley. But they also know in the valley there are these rattlesnakes, the copperheads and the adlers and all of those dangerous for the family. And this discernment is to live above the snake line, to about, about this spiritual sna- snake line, to say, I don't want to be living below that. I don't want to put myself at risk because sin is so dangerous. It, is, it, it destroys that I'd have the discernment to live above through the strength that God gives. You know that hymn that says, a higher ground, uh, 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 let me stand on a higher ground. That's exactly what it is, the, about the snake line. And I pray this for ourselves as, as a church. Especially it starts with us. We have this easy inclination to, to euphemize sin or to excuse away sin. And the Spirit of God continues to convict Till such time you've quenched him. And I pray that we will never get to that point where spirit, the spirit stops to convict of the sin in our lives. And that we will insist, Lord, do not let me go. Draw me up to that higher ground that I can live above the snake line. That in my life and in the life of the community, 
my God will be glorified. Father, we thank you for all that you've been to us. We pray, Lord, that we would not be deceived. We pray that we would be discerning and that we can call sin, sin in our lives and have the accountability to call it in each other's life and be loved because we have tried to put cancer away, the destructive power of the sin away from our midst, from taking root, growing those roots so deep that it's difficult to pull out, those weeds that corrupt our soul. And we pray, Father, that our lives would be lived in its, in its purity, in its holiness for you and for you alone. We thank you that you answered this prayer because it's in your will and we want to do this in your strength. And all God's people said, Amen.